Welcome to Permaculture Freedom Podcast. My name is Cody and I'm your host. This is a show about cultivating freedom in our lives so we can be our best self. Freedom to live a beautiful, regenerative lifestyle that inspires our families, our friends, and our community. To transform our lives and reconnect to nature within. It's a revival of our roots. Roots that run deep into the earth. We were born for this time. We were born for this time. Thanks for joining me on this beautiful journey. Thanks for showing up. On an island in the middle of the Mediterranean lives a remarkable woman. She is a herbalist and a healer, a breeder of Afghan hounds and the author of many books. She is a traveler in search of herbal wisdom, a friend and helper of the gypsies, and the pioneer of holistic veterinary medicine. Juliet de Barakli-Levy and the books she has written have been a vital inspiration for today's herbal revival. I have in my lifetime made ten gardens, and wherever I go I plant two things for sure, rosemary and uh, southernwood. Rosemary is one of my most favorite herbs. My children are sarcastic. They say I cure everything with it. But they have had very serious injuries, and merely bathing with rosemary has totally healed them. And it is just the greatest of the wooden herbs. It's very antiseptic. It is beloved by the bees and the butterflies. And, and it has such a lovely name, Rosemary, Rosmarinus, Dew of the Sea. As I seem to always be living by the sea, it does very well with me because it gets dew from the sea. And my other plant, um, southernwood, is one of the Artemisia family. And the Artemisia was a great herbalist. What is beautiful about southernwood, it is the protector of women and the newborn infant. And I have done miracles with it, giving it to animals which enable to pass their young ones or their placentas. Give them a drink of, of sunwood and honey and ivy leaves, not the poison ivy of America, the climbing ivy of most of the other parts of the world. Every hospital had its garden growing these plants. Instead of their shelves and shelves of chemical medicines, there would be so much less pain in the world and successful healing, and it's promised in the Bible. It says, I've given you the, the plants of the, of the earth to heal you and to keep you healthy. Now, of all my herbal remedies, I've got a good one against mosquitoes, I've got a good one against hair lice and children, but the best I call the laying on of leaves. For very bad wounds, I used to put leaves direct on the wounds, and it was amazingly effective. Normally, people put on bandages, ointments, and when they take off the bandages, they pull off the scabs most painfully. It happens again and again and again. The leaves just peel off. They've taken the poison out of the wound, and there's no pain whatsoever. 
My most exciting dramatic cure is a short one. There was a, a woman called Ayla, Ada Olkoop, and she'd been in a car accident. Actually, the car had plunged down into a ravine, and her own bone had pierced her leg very, very badly. She said her broken bone. And the leg had turned gangrenous and was going to be amputated below the knee. And she'd heard of me, and she knew that I visited an organic farm near Akko in Israel, and she came along and pleaded with me to treat her. Well, gangrene is very serious. But she said to me, don't worry. The doctor said you can't do any worse than it is, that they're going to amputate the leg anyway, and there's no chance that you can help them, but you can play your games with your leaves and flowers and things if you want. And, and they, they won't be punished if anything goes wrong, because nothing can go worse than that. So I said, all right, then I, I'll take it on, because in these gardens here are everything I want in abundance. Huge threading leaves, huge mustache leaves, huge marrow leaves, and that's what we're going to cure you with. But I said, um, try and go on a, a semi-fast. She went on a macrobiotic diet, which is quite sensible. And she cheated because she smoked, but I, the nerves were so shattered I couldn't be too cross about that. So we started, we got the leaves, we rinsed them and put them on her stinking leg and her gangrene weeks and put the cold, wet cotton bandages on. And it was amazing what these leaves did. They would turn absolutely black from the filth they were bringing out for her wound. And uh, slowly, slowly, she felt better, less smell coming out of her leg. And the cure was beginning to look really, really successful. But I couldn't continue there. I said, you'll have to carry on by yourself because I trust you to do it. You know how to do it. And uh, so I didn't know the ending of it. But my daughter brought me the ending. She said, it's the talk of Jerusalem. You have cured uh, Ada's leg of gangrene. And that was true. So one of the main purposes of having gardens is that this garden is your teacher and your friend. You have an, uh, some illness and you think, I wonder if that would be good for that. You try it. It may be and it may not be. And if it is, then you... It's in your heart forever, and you, you want to write about it. So that's how my herbal books have come into, into being. Juliet's books record the wisdom of nature and the nature-living peoples. Her herbal handbooks for the dog and for farm and stable were the first veterinary herbals ever to be published, as until then the ancient art of the farrier and the gypsy had been passed on only by the spoken word. These books, together with Juliet's Herbals for Children and for Everyone, have become classics and have touched thousands of human and animal lives. Juliet has also written novels, poetry, and some well-loved travel books, which describe the joys of simple living in many parts of the world. On all my travels, and I found beautiful and interesting places, I would stay there many months. Many areas were wild and isolated, but I always found some ruin or cave or small cottage to live in. In all those places, because my living pattern was more that of the nomads and peasants, they accepted me at once, became my friends and teachers. 
For the nomads and peasants, I wandered and got the knowledge of how to cultivate my own patch of corn, how to preserve olives, how to dry wild fruits, how to make medicines from herbs, the leaves, roots, and from tree bark. But I found far more than herbal knowledge which I sought from these people. I also learned their simple laws of honesty and morality, and health and hardiness, how to live rough and be happy every day of the primitive living. Juliet began her nomad travels in England in the 1930s, inspired by Matthew Arnold's poem, The Scholar Gypsy. Come, let me read the oft-read tale again, the story of that Oxford scholar poor, of pregnant parts and quick, inventive brain, who, tired of knocking at preferment's door, one summer morn forsook his friends and went to learn the gypsy law and roamed the world with that wild brotherhood, and came, as most men deemed, to little good, but came to Oxford and his friends no more. The flower has always been my companion, so the simple things of life, and, um, I come from the last sort of family to appreciate flour because they were not only wealthy, extremely wealthy. We had the usual chauffeurs and maids and cooks and governesses and gardeners. And even as a little girl, I used to go off wandering around picking wildflowers. We had a competition in Manchester for the best press collection of wildflowers, and Juliet won it. And she was a very little girl then. Juliet's father was Turkish and her mother was Egyptian. But this Oriental Jewish family raised their children in rainy Manchester. And the other thing was my passion for dogs. Every year my grandfather was also an animal lover. would come from Turkey with golden bracelets for my sisters, but for me a new puppy. He'd bring me a fluffy black puppy or a brown puppy, put it in my arms, joy, for about two months. Then the puppy would get sick, be banished to the cellar for me to treat it down there. He'd want a sick puppy in the home. And it was really dying, the vet would be called, take the puppy away and never came back again. The vet didn't know how to cure my puppy. So I was determined to be a vet. I went to a good, good schools and two universities which my father thought was a correct thing to do for his daughters. But I went to the university, and I didn't learn what I wanted to learn there. I didn't, know, I didn't learn how to cure animals. So I knew that the way to learn was from the people who live close to their animals, the gypsies and the Berbers and, and the Bedouins. And, and there I could see were successful. They hadn't got these thick, weak-looking animals around. They had magnificent animals. They themselves had wonderful hair and wonderful teeth, and the joy of life was shining in their faces. 
I knew that in the countryside, the larks were soaring, the peewits were screaming and crying across the fields. The herbs were opening out into leaf, and I wanted that to be my classroom. when modern medicine, chemical drugs and vaccines were the hope of the future. Juliet realized that the knowledge gathered over thousands of years by the gypsies and peasants of the world was in danger of being lost forever. She became a keeper and guardian of this knowledge for the many years when she was quite alone in her crusade for herbal medicine. Once, years after, in the country lanes, two scholars whom at college erst he knew met him and of his way of life inquired, whereat he answered that the gypsy crew, his mates, had arts to rule as they desired the workings of men's brains, and they can bind them to what thoughts they will. And I, he said, the secret of their art, when fully learned, will to the world impart. But it needs heaven-sent moments for this skill. People ask me how I got gained the friendship of these well, native people. They don't usually talk to any of what they call the tourists. It was just that we shared this, this natural love of plants. We used to swap. Juliet spent as much time as she could with the English gypsies, and for a few years after leaving veterinary college, she also ran a distemper clinic in London, where she carried out her newly learnt herbal treatments and began to naturally rear her own Afghan hounds. Here she gained a reputation for herself, and the royal vet to the king sent her the dogs of Douglas Fairbanks and the tenor Richard Tauber to be cured. While working both in the city and the country, Juliet began to write her first veterinary herbal, based on some of her spectacular cures. Things for the sheep that I did my best veterinary work. In 1947, there was a tremendous snowstorm and swell day on it on the Yorkshire borders. And I was staying with a family who were sheep farmers. Where thousands of sheep were condemned as incurable by orthodox veterinary medicine. So they asked me to come and look at the sheep. And I said, of course they can be saved. They're starving from lack of chlorophyll. They've been in these snowdrifts for probably weeks. And we go out and get the only green thing there is, and that's ivy. Now, there's a funny old fashion song, little lambs eat, eat ivy. <laughs> that amused them. And we tried it out, and it worked. They began to, they stopped aborting, their diarrhea stopped, and, and they, they all recovered. 
and the debt to their incurable. Now, it wasn't 300, it was in all 3,000. Those that you saved and those that never took the illness. There's one other thing I suggested, and that was molasses. And that pleased them too, because they noticed that two of the rams used to pull a cork out of the molasses jug and, and, and lick it up. So they thought, well, they know something that she's telling us to do, we'll do that also. And we, they were all saved. That brought my work to the notice of uh, Albert Howard, and he asked me to get testimonials. That was difficult, because their English was very, <laughs> very developed. But anyway, things like, she came, saw, saw our sheep, she cured them, thank you very much. Those are my testimonials. Urged by Sir Albert Howard to learn all she could about gypsy and peasant herbal medicine, Juliet left England to live with the nomads and peasants of the world. She travelled to France, Spain, Greece, Turkey, the Middle East, Morocco, Tunisia, Mexico and the United States. Yonder along horizon lies, and there by night and day, the old ships draw to home again. The young ships sail away. When I think of travel, it's always the sea. That's the only true way to travel. The beauty of it all, the sound of it all. The sails and the lapping waters and the seagulls. I love Robert Louis Stevenson's description of travel. Blue days at sea. Where lies the land to which the ships would go? Far, far ahead is all the sea men know. And where the land she travels from, away, far, far behind, is all that they can stay. In the 1940s, Juliet came to America to visit an Afghan hound of hers who had become famous and also to study more herbal medicine with Edmund Bordeaux Zakely at his Rancho La Puerta in Baja, California. At that time, Helen and Scott Nearing were also at the ranch. Scott and I were in Mexico, and we saw this uh, wonderful little gypsy-looking woman crouched down, barefooted, working on a, on a herb garden. We stopped to talk to her, not knowing who it was, she not knowing who we were, and we instantly, all three, fell in love. But she was obviously an original, and she was obviously happy, and she was obviously a, a simple living person. And do you remember the raw food that we ate? It was cabbage yes. and hardtack and onions and garlic. And, and peanut butter. And and peanut butter and mint tea. Yeah. That's all we got. Yeah. And you went to a sort of a bookcase, and there, there was your name and your food for the day, and that was what we got for our thirty-five dollars. <laughs> <laughs> but we met. I bet it's it's three hundred and fifty a day now. It's one of these uh, Golden Door spas now. And uh, we found she was found out she was a famous herbalist and had done wonderful cures in in England, and was renowned in that part of the world, although she'd never been in Mexico or the United States before. I liked the softness, the uh, 
inspiration of Juliet. She had no pretensions at all. I had a great love affair with the cows. I, <laughs> I adored them, and they adored me. And I was the gardener there, so I'd give them barrel loads of weeds. And one day, a crow came to me, the Modena family said, you must not talk one more word to those cows, nor touch them. They take them up the mountainside to graze, and then ten minutes they're back. Wanted to be with you. Yeah. <laughs> going to help you. I promise. Thank you for coming to see me. But never hurt you. You're my favorite animal. The oxen, the cows. Look. Some stupid people living on the ranch, students, didn't like the cows banging into the, the wooden shacks in which we were living. And they put up barbed wire and the cows had torn their others they were leaking badly. And that was a disaster for these Mexicans. They absolutely lie on cow's milk and, and the cheeses from the cows. So I said I'd help them. We helped them in a very simple way. We got kelp cobwebs. They're very, known to be very sticky. We poured some uh, witch hazel extract, which is very astringent, into the wounds. Plugged them with cobwebs. And in three days, the milk leakage had stopped and uh, all was well again. One of the things I learned there is the intelligence of an animal to heal itself. Professor's cat, his beloved cat, Ariman, was bitten by a rattlesnake. And we were all gathering around him, thinking I could help him. The cat was furious, scratched himself away, went off to cure himself. His cure was to stand in the river for three days, eating grasses, vomiting them up, and he emerged totally cured. It was very impressive. How is it these... These wild animals manage to keep so healthy. The fox, the deer, they don't die. Very rarely die giving birth, but they keep healthy. So I thought, well, I'm going to learn from them. And the American Indians are very, very conscious of the animals. They say, what is, what is earth without the animals? Not only are there our fertility in keeping the land rich in their manure, there are foods, there are friends. Even King Solomon, the wise, wise, wise. God would grant him anything he wanted. He could ask for another hundred wise, <laughs> increased riches. His wish was that he could understand the conversation of the animals. Because he knew that he would learn from them wisdom and medicine, everything they've got. The cat and the dog, they're the carnivores. They're really very omnivorous. I mean, it's known that in the wild, when a prey kills, the first thing it does is tear out the intestines of its prey. When it gets all these berries and cereals and nuts and all these things, it's the first thing they want to eat. And so my dogs get all these things. I made a big list of herbs which I've observed dogs eating, it's quite extraordinary. Not only the famous couch grass, which they use to vomit and to excrete as an internal cleansing. They use fig leaves. They use vine leaves. 
is mulberry leaves, borage, wild strawberry leaves. All this is their own choice. And the knowledge of these animals is allowed to do what their instinct tells them. So if the dogs do have access to plants, they'll be very much healthier because they can choose their own medicines. Yeah. Juliet has bred and raised her strain of Afghan hounds, the Turkomans, since the 1930s, when she first met the Afghan tribesmen who introduced her to their dogs. My father was a great dealer in precious jewels and rugs, and especially Afghan tribesmen used to impress me, used to come and consult him. And I had a bourgeois in those days, and they tell me about their hounds how wonderful they were, how clever they were, how beautiful they were, and showed me photographs of them. And I was determined one day to get one of my own. Since then, many generations of Turkomans have been naturally reared on a diet of raw meat, whole grains, herbs, berries, and white cheese. They are famed for their health, speed, vitality, and beauty. The only Afghan ever to win Best of Show at Westminster was directly descended from Juliet's Turkoman Nisim's Laurel, a famous champion in his own right. Oh, they said that I was raising these a Afghans on a new way. Actually, it's the oldest way in the world. I was merely following the nature way, giving them the sort of things that the wild dogs would eat. When I began my travels, it was unusual for a young woman to be traveling alone. But I wouldn't have traveled alone without an Afghan hound, I must say, my guardian. I wouldn't be here now. I'd be in a grave somewhere if it wasn't for Afghan hounds. Because again and again they have saved my life. The most spectacular one was in, on the island of Kithira in, uh, in Greece. The daily exercises, which are a joke, which I like to do, <laughs> always seem to involve me in danger. I was on my way in my garden to my usual place, under an almond tree in the shade, an exact hour, which I always do it every morning, when suddenly an Afghan hound bitch of mine called Ali rushes away, shoots away. I tend to look what it was, and I stopped walking, advancing. Otherwise, I'd been under the tree when it simply fell in half. It would have crushed me to pieces. They say that dogs and cats have a special instinct, a danger instinct in the case of earth tremors, earthquakes, and they take off before the, the accident happens. And she had seen what was going to happen to that tree. God, come here. The gypsy people say that Joko, their Romany word for the dog, is man's eyes and ears while man sleeps in the night. This is the correct observation, as are many of the ancient pronouncements of the gypsies.
In Romney law, the killing of a horse, a dog, is the greatest crime that any man can commit other than homicide. In the 1950s, Juliet spent much time with the gypsies of France and Spain. I've learnt so much from the gypsies. Much herbal medicine, prophecy, strange things which have helped me tremendously in my life, which have helped me to write my book. I'm going to eventually return to Granada. That was one of my most favorite cities in the world, Granada. The gypsies there have the blood of the Moors in their veins, and they are very special and very beautiful. We used to dance my big red friend, Fuego. Ole and Fuego and dance around him. On my last day of my first visit to Granada, which was my most momentous visit, I had arranged a celebration with what we call the poor gypsies of the Alhambra Gardens. The very sympathetic ones who sell peanuts and dance for the tourists in the little groves of Granada. We went to a small inn and we arranged the, their favorite meal of tomato sandwiches and beer and we were feasting at midnight suddenly into the window came a swift there were no swifts in the sky at that time usually at dusk they vanish it came in through the window and landed on my lap and the gypsies were so excited they said this is amazing good luck wish for anything you want and your wish will be granted I wished and it was late spring and the following late spring my wish had been granted. Juliet's wish was for a child. By the next year she had met her husband, a Spanish journalist, and her first child, a son, was born on the Tunisian island of Jerba. For the next few years Juliet returned often to Granada.
is so strange, 40 years back, such personal drama enacted in this very area of Granada. When I went up to the mountains of Sierra Nevada for the birth of my second child and developed typhus, my herbal and nature instincts certainly saved my life because many, many people died, including most of the children of that area. My instinct was to fast. So I fast on water and lemon juice. The lemon lady came with her basket of lemons every few days, and I bathed in the mill stream. So for 30 days I lived on lemon juice and water and bathed in the mill stream, and I survived. But my little daughter had been born to me. That was to be another dramatic tragedy. And another miracle happened. It was the night of Saint Juan when the gypsies came to dance in the mill. They'd not been there for years because they did not like the miller's wife. But for me, they came to dance. And I heard one woman say to another woman, how can I dance with that baby's dying in the mother's arms? She doesn't know it. So that scared me. And I sent for the doctor. And he said to the miller's wife, prepare the mother, the baby will die in the night. And again I said, I'll not let it happen. So this is the miracle. I was going to, I thought I'll take her up to the terrace of this fresh air. And at the foot of the terrace was growing a clump of white opium poppies, glistening, it was night, glistening in the moonlight. I never saw them there before, I never saw them again. I picked them all, and I thought, well, opium is the soothing plant. A plant of sleep, and this baby is crying with her pain. At least I'll let her have some soothing sleep, although well, it's a drastic thing to give to a, a newborn baby. So I made her a drink of syrup from the poppies, and she didn't die that night, nor the next night, nor the next night. Now she's one of the world's strongest people. So now again the gypsies came into my life in a benevolent way as ever. A beautiful young gypsy girl, Rosalia, had a newborn son offered to feed my baby Luz at her breast. And the kind of happiness came. I'd see Rosalia sitting under the pomegranate trees, singing her gypsy song, a rose in her hair, feeding my baby. And the baby flourished. And then, as Rosalia had her son also, Time came and I had to take the baby away from Rosario. She had not enough milk for her son and my daughter. So, more drama. We choose the mill, the mill, water mill goat, where I was, the mill where I was living. And the goat comes stepping forward and allows the baby to feed from her udder. What was so charming, the goat would know the feeding hours of the baby and come to the cradle, entirely of her own to offer her other. It's such an animal people slaughter and eat, imagine it. Juliet's husband was in the Spanish Legion, so she raised her two children, Rafik and Luz, on her own, traveling and living as always, like a gypsy. Well, I think of all the countries that the children have shared with me, 
many countries, including America, Mexico, England, of course, Spain. I think the most important years in their life and which influenced their characters most was Israel. The wonder of the Lake of Galilee, which was the core of our lives, swimming in that wonderful lake. All the animals we could keep there, who used to swim in the lake with us. There we had marvelous times in our lives, because there we raised hawks and owls. We used to call it the summer of the hawks. That was a wonderful summer. They were always free. They chose to nest on the cattle tree above my bed out on the terrace. And then they would, at night, give their thanksgiving flights to God. They would fly over the Lake of Galilee, out of sight, in the setting sun, and they'd come soaring back again to land on us. They always landed on my head through our shoulders. And at night, I would light a storm lantern, take my two children, one of our dogs with us, and walk over the hills to where Bedouins were camped on a hilltop opposite the lake. And that was sheer heaven. They call them people of the wind. There's one little cool airs we used to sleep out on the ground. There's one little cool airs blowing around us. And the sound of their animals, the clucking of guinea hens, the, the quiet blowing of the cattle of the sheep. Lying awake at night, I could visualize myself in crowded streets and fairs in Morocco, walking down narrow alleys, intoxicated by strong exotic fragrances. My eyes dazzled by the splendor of color, and then, in the desert, caught in a sandstorm, being rescued by a handsome Bedouin, and taken to this mysterious black tent, being received in the true oriental manner, with wonderful food and fabulous gifts. Excellent. A very lovely story. And you carry on the family tradition. What about you? I keep boasting to you about the ancestors who were storytellers to Abdul Hamid in, in Turkey. And um, that's how we got the family crest, the Baraki flags. They used to wave their flags in appreciation of these strange stories that the family used to tell. And I would have another storyteller in this lady. Because Luz will tell her stories to her, and she'll pass them on to her children. So my children grew up with animals. We had goat, donkey, Afghan hounds, the pet toad was sweet. Remember Mr. Moses? I'd say present day that the most important thing that one can teach children is love for the animals. I love, love, love the story of Christ in the manger. That God trusted the animals to care for his son. Far, far, far more than treacherous man. They kept him warm with their warmth in their bodies, the lovely sense of their breathing. So obviously my children had a vegetarian diet. 
And I did keep a goat. Nearly all their lives to give them goat's milk and goat's cheese. And probably our basic food was soft goat's cheese, chopped up greens from the garden. And all their friends used to come along to have a taste of this. It was so popular. I was very strict. I grew up really. It was pure air and pure water. I, I remember. Because I was following the teasings of Hippocrates. That's what he taught. The father of all medicine. But the two elements essential to the health of man. The first is air, the second is water. And look what modernization has done to the air and the water of, our, of the modern children. A cruel tragedy. For the money that they make from the stupid development of modernization, they're killing the children of the world and the animals. to and fro across a rapidly changing world, my travels began to acquire a feeling of urgency. This unquiet and troubled feeling was caused by a desire to know the beautiful places of the earth before mechanized modern progress spoilt them. To know all possible kinds of wild animals, birds, reptiles, plants and trees, for modern chemical poisons on earth and in water. Land development or traps and guns wipe them out totally. For the past 10 years, Juliet has been living on the Greek island of Kythera, where her daily life, without running water or electricity, is still as close to nature as ever. There's a Greek island associated with Aphrodite, who, as we all know, is the goddess of love. And when she, she came to the island, out of the sea, riding on the cockle shell, and where she trod, the stones turned into hearts, and flowers sprang up under her feet, and that is really strange because on this island, flowers grow right down almost to the sea line. We have the sea lilies, anemones, and narcissi, all growing close down by the sea. Well, it's a simple law of herb gathering: never take too much from any bush and give thanks when you take it. And the primitive people, the real herb gatherers like the gypsies and the peasants, they know that. And they protect their herbs also. They pile leaves on them against cold weather on their roots. And they have their special picking places. So you should be thankful for them and never pick to destroy them. They like to have life as, as much as we do. Thank you, that's enough from you for this season. Come on, Cleanly. Go.
come on clearly now. It's been in the olive grove. Now you can go and have a bathe in the sea, all right? Because you love that, don't you? You love your bathe. of being one of the best trees on the island. Now never allow the sprayers near you. And of course I'll leave some for you. At least half a kilo dug into your roots. Because you grow the olives for yourself, not for people. And you'll get them. You've always got them. Why you're such a beautiful tree, this tree of light, so rich with oil. No wonder your leaves shine. Sweet, sweet, sweet robins. Aren't you lovely? Listen to me. In a few yards where they're shooting you, the devils. Shooting you to eat you, tiny little bodies like that. And the saying, a, a robin in a cage puts all heaven in a rage. What about a robin dead? It's got to be stopped, this killing of the songbirds. Now I'll do my best for you, I promise you. In books and lectures, I'll do my best. What sweet song, robin song. flowers as a, a recollection on Chernobyl because in all my travels since it's now five years since that horrific explosion we've noticed that the vegetation is abnormal. These flowers I'm holding are as big as garden flowers and they're just taken from the wild fields. The um, Japanese set of Horoshima, at least it gave us good vegetation. The island in which I have been living for the past 10 years, the island of Kithira near Crete, was heavily sprayed. So was Crete. My own experience I will never forget. It was about 10 o'clock in the morning, hearing a sizzling sound outside. I ran outside. And coming from an unexpected area, because we faced the sea, this came right back over the mountains where there is sea. These scalding winds, like something out of hell burning on my back. There were two dead limits in the field, a little black-headed pit, struggling bewilderment. I picked it up and put it in the bush, the cats couldn't reach it, and ran to take my Afghan hounds as far away as I could because this wind was just coming in straight lines, it seemed to be. And it's in these straight lines that things died. My giant rosemary bush withered. My lemon tree behaved in an abnormal way. It became covered with thousands of little lemons and the overproductivity killed it's one of the best lemon trees on the island now the saddest thing of all is that it's attacking the ancient olive trees they're getting so weak that ants are crawling at them making holes of them and entering the hearts of the olive trees 
One man, a neighbor, on the hillside above me, Yanis, he has lost, totally lost the knowledge. He has died. He's astounded at such a thing happening. My olive tree, if I didn't protect it, would obviously be killed also. I'm protecting it in a natural way by piling wood ash over its roots, and that very much disturbs the ants who just sink in it and they turn back. But now I've got to make extra fires to get extra wood ash. And when I'm gone, which I will be doing in about a year's time, leaving this island, who's going to continue that? This olive tree, nearly 100 years old. The house was built in 1902, and the olive tree was planted then. It's very likely to die. This olive tree not only gives me three sat loads of olives every year, it also gives shade for my house, and I love it deeply. It's an old friend of mine. My love is like a gypsy who wanders on the moors. Talkative and tipsy, she will not bide indoors. Set her warm and cosy from the wind clouds and the rain. Ere the morn is rosy, she'll be gone again. Wind blowing in her hair, thorns in her gown. Oh, come and leave the piled skies of wind clouds and rain. She answers with her wild eyes and then is gone again. Since 1991, Juliet's travels have brought her back to America almost every summer. Here, her books have had a tremendous influence on today's herbal revival. Yes, yes. Well, I'm especially, especially delighted to introduce you to my teacher and my mentor, Juliet de Berkeley-Levy. She's, um, I think, the single person who's had the most influence on American herbalism. Um, and this is especially remarkable because she wasn't even living in America and hadn't been here in many, many years. Her influence came mostly through the impact of a series of books that had been written in the late 40s or early 40s up to the 60s. And these books kind of infiltrated American herbalism. Now, uh, truthfully, this assembly reminds me of the great gathering of the magicians outside the Library of Alexander. Anybody heard of them? Well, they all came together thousands of years ago to put their knowledge into the library. And um, they came out, put, they achieved that, came outside to dance, the music, celebrate. They saw the whole sky above the library was red, it was on fire. And all their knowledge was burnt. So they got together again and they decided they would give this knowledge to the most traveled people in the world, the gypsies. And they called them the tarot cards. Now, the gypsies very cheating, they kept the knowledge to themselves. To <laughs> <laughs> this day. When I first brought Julia to this country in 19, it was in 1991 at the first International Herb Symposium, she already had a huge following. But a lot of the younger herbalists who were just coming into the field hadn't heard of her, which I think is rather 
a statement on the on our part that we that it's very important to honor the elders, the people who carried these traditions on, who passed the traditions on. A lot of people who are my age, who are entering into their 50s, her books were probably the major books we depended on. She had a tremendous free spirit, I'd say, you know, and and it encouraged us, and it it somehow uh, supported us in being that way ourselves. I think what she did in us is instill in us the ability to understand the plants themselves, to tune into them and to recognize them and to give thanks for them. Lots and lots of people since those early days when herbalism was just growing like a little blossom up, without even knowing the influence that Julius had, have been affected by her work because all the teachers that they study with have been. <laughs> Being in touch with Juliet's work was a major turning point for me, not just in terms of the herbal medicine, but also in terms of really having a role model, having the spirit of this woman who just took her life in her own hands, went out, went among the native peoples of the areas that she was living in, and really listened to them with honor and respect. It said to me, Susan, you can do this too. The fact that you don't have a grandmother who can tutor you in this, the fact that you don't have a teacher that you can go to, it's all right. Juliet didn't have teachers other than the plants and the people who use those. Go, listen to the plants, listen to the people. And, of course, this is one of my messages as well to the ever-upwelling group of students interested in herbal medicine. You don't need to get a certificate. Herbal medicine is the medicine of the people. It is practiced all over this planet by the simplest of all people. This, I think, is one of the most precious of the messages that Juliet gives us. Herbal medicine, it's for everyone. And Juliet's work, the Herbal for Farm and Stable has always been a real treasure for me whenever any of my animals, my cats, my goats, my rabbits, is having any problem. I always look to Juliet de Berkeley Levy's book first. One of the really remarkable things I, I admire about Juliet and always have is that her courage and her insights to talk about things at a time when they weren't really the in thing. You know, Juliet was an advocate for animal care since the 1940s. In fact, she was probably one of our earliest animal advocates. And people who are in herbalism don't even realize that, that she's had a, a remarkable in, uh, sphere of influence in the animal world. My first introduction to Juliet's work came in 1971. Jack and I had imported our first Newfoundland from Germany in 1967. And by 1971, her health was so poor that she'd been given a month to live. She had liver degeneration and kidney degeneration. I read Juliet's book, and in there I found described all problems that I had seen with my dog. And in the book, she had said that in order to get a dog back on track, it was necessary to fast. And I introduced this concept to my husband, who was horrified. He said that if the dog only had a few weeks to live, that she should have steak every day. And I said, I'm not going to feed her at all. So I won, and I didn't feed her. And the more I didn't feed her, the better she got. Of course, she had a lot of fluids. And then gradually, over a three-week period, we introduced her to, first of all, herbs, 
then some grains and honey and some goat's milk and then to meat. But I had to find dandelions. That was the first request. And we, living in the suburbs as a young married couple, had prided ourselves on the most perfect lawns. Not one weed was to be found. And in the middle of the night, I used to have to go around to my neighbor's lawns and with a little trowel and dig up dandelions. And in the morning, I'd wash them and clean them. And Jack would say to me, she's never going to eat those. And I said, well, let's just see. And I'd put dandelion leaves into Heidi's bowl and she licked it clean and we were on our way. She was five when this all happened. She lived a very long and happy life until she was 12 and a half. My Newfoundlands live routinely to be 14 years of age. They're healthy and vital till the end. And the average age of Newfoundlands in this country is 6.2 to 6.7. So I must be doing something right. And I think it's that everything that I learned from Juliet. So reading Juliet's book set me on a course um, and a profession, really. Uh, and I'm still going out today teaching people how to use the natural diet, um, how to uh, work with their dogs naturally. This dog was brought across the border from Mexico. Oh, it really is a chihuahua. This is a chihuahua yes. uh, from the streets, uh, kind of an Indian dog. Yes. You can notice his back end is yes. almost bald. Yes. And he's got scabs all over the place. And then they started getting itchy. Oh, I see. So what do you think he's got? Oh, I see. You don't diagnose it. I would say it is mange. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what he's got. Yes, well, you give him plenty and plenty of garlic. Mm-hmm. He's uh, garlic, yes. Uh, I'm learning that from you, I yeah. guess. Is that, uh, then make him an external lotion. You can't get elder around here, can you? Elder is very common around is here. Is it? Yeah. So you would get an extract of that? Uh, no, I'd make a brew and uh -huh. rub him down with it. Okay, that's I'd good. I'd get elder and I'd get, um, what's another sage called? Elder and rosemary, I would uh -huh. rub that into him. Give him lots of garlic internally, I'd say, wouldn't you? Yeah, we've given yeah. him uh, enough garlic. He's quite bright and healthy. He doesn't, he has a nasty... He's bright, isn't he? Mousy smell that follicular uh, um, uh -huh. mange has. Yeah. He hasn't got that. Uh-huh. Well, I had been a veterinarian for six, seven years, and I had become somewhat disillusioned with my profession. But I didn't know there was an alternative, and I picked up this book, and it's funny how little things come into your life. Found it in a bookstore. I, I've still got it. Uh, the herbal book for the dog, this raggedy old thing. And at the time, I was just buying everything I could get on dogs if I saw something used. Had no idea it was a gold mine. And uh, so I picked that up, and then I was starting to read the most shocking things I'd ever heard in my life. No one told me about fasting. That just blew me away. Uh, I thought dog food was great because that was all there was. And when you look at her dogs, that's what amazed me. That's what talks, is uh, to see one of those dogs in action. And then uh, I'll always carry that image in my mind of I've seen the sharpness. I live here in Minnesota. We have timber wolves just a short drive from here in the wild. We have lynx, bobcat, uh, coyote, fox. When you see these animals in the wild, take those images in, and that's where the, the true healing is. We need to find that wildness that I see in her dog. I, I believe that so much of Julia's work is spiritual and sacred work. 
And that doesn't translate well into a prescription bottle. Well, I'll tell you a story about an owl, shall I? You know, owls like to be talked to. Have you noticed that? If you talk to them, they'll answer you back. It's quite a lovely conversation, I must say. And I've talked to them all over the world. The best was in San Sebastian, Spain. I started talking to them about a couple of owls. One night, there was a huge owl party. Really. The whole wood was wild with owls, all screaming and shouting. I was shouting back. <laughs> and a lot of hounds, and they were all barking, and the people were wild inside the house. This wild commotion going on. <laughs> I'm oh, sorry, but Helen's next. <laughs> I shouldn't have interrupted her. <laughs> no, it had come to its happy ending. I might say that Juliet yeah. had an Arab lover when Girl she was living in, in Israel, and it was, and it, was not, it, was, it was not very popular with the uh, surrounding neighborhood. You were in the Golan, near the Golan Heights, yes. weren't you? That's why I had to leave the Amarim. He came to rescue me from a, a, a kibbutz. Oh. Yes. With my beehives and everything, didn't you, Richard? Yes. Well, there's my scandalous past now. Just <laughs> 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 we'll stick to one, I think. Yes. <laughs> Helen, I'm surprised at you. <laughs> no wonder she played Shannon Door in my garden, so romantic music. Doesn't it? Yes. Well, in our total of uh, 40 or 50 years knowing each other, many letters have passed, and I treasure every letter which I get from uh, Juliet and have kept them. But we've only met four or five times in all those years, and yet we have immediate response, immediate uh, contact. We obviously have uh, ideals in common. We obviously have activities in common. And uh, she's 10 years my junior, but I feel as if we were sisters. I think the greatest thing about Juliet is her constant kindness. She seems to treat everybody the same, and she seems to look on. Uh, she seems to look on life with with uh, almost gratitude in what it brings to her. In chances, she must have had hard times in her life, and she's taken it with cheer and with fortitude. But her greatest quality, I think, is her universal kindness. The reason that I came to America is to speak to the animals, because their lot is bitter. It's impertinent of man to think that any man can love. Animals, no intense love and devotion. Now they will often die for one another to save each other. And this loving treatment they show all their lives to men. I don't know whether I'm religious or not, but... Um, I do believe very much in God and his tremendous power. And, and I think that if one reason God destroys the world is his anger at what man is doing to the animals.
and getting worse, they got away with his factory houses for chickens without putting them in the lunatic sound for people doing it. And now they're on to cattle. The cows hardly get any exercise at all. They're kept in these stores and they are sort of concentrated fed. You see what's happening now? They're going crazy. Those poor little ones, so afraid they should be with their mothers. There is a traditional saying, where a bee can live, man can live, but the bees are no longer living. That is a warning. In this island in which I live, once famous for its thyme honey, the sickness amongst the bees is horrific. I see them my own eyes crawling around on the ground half dead. Why? Because man exploits the bees as he exploits the herbs, as he exploits man himself. The impertinence of man, playing on the bees. They take propolis, which they use so much for gluing things together. They take the royal jelly, and worse, they take bee pollen. It's supposed to give you fertility. And it means brushing the pollen off the bee's legs and brushing the legs away often with the pollen. So to stop playing on the bees, don't take any of these things. Sure, if they give us honey, that's enough. And remember, there's an expression, tell it to the bees. They like to know what's going on in the family. Marriages and divorces and births and... Do you, talk, you talk to your bees? Yes, yeah. tell it to the bees, yeah. their own expression. Never. I have specialized in medicine for animals, but I have also taken a great interest in children. But it is my animal books that, for instance, one of them sells 50,000 copies. And it's from these books that I have the greatest friends worldwide. It's quite touching, really. People coming up to say what, what, what a how I've held them. Gaia was really very, very um, emotional, I'd say. People bringing back their books from 20 years ago, saying, my mother used them, and now I'm using them, and they've really helped us. It's not my intelligence, it's just learning from nature. Nature never, never goes wrong. This learning from the earth and from the people who work the earth or travel it is of endless discovery and interest. It's like making a collection of beautiful things of many kinds. But what would become of the world if that biblical land flowing with milk and honey and no longer produce either for future generations.
the, my latest book, which was to be about Scott's exemplary leading, yes. how he decided it was time yes. enough. He had lived 100 years. He thought 100 years is enough. He was interested to know what's going on afterwards. Yes. And his body was becoming not sick but enfeebled. And at uh, supper one day, he just said, I think I won't eat anymore. And he didn't eat anymore. And within a month and a half, he was, he was gone. So I thought I would write about his exemplary death. And I called it Leaving the Good Life. It's well, quite typical of the island, the old people stop eating. In my island, kids are. Ah, your yes, island. Yes, they stop they, eating. They stop eating. Yes. Simple. Slowly fade away. Yeah. Yes. It's I'm going to go that way, aren't yes, you? Yes, so am I. <laughs> Unless I die violently and I want to be buried at sea in a strong piece of canvas with lots of stones. Begging out to see that's also nice. <laughs> we begin to think about this when we past 70, don't we? I think I've got a long lifeline. Yes, you've got a long lifeline. Uh -huh. You can choose the way you uh, go, and you will choose the way you yes. go. You are the most friendly person. God, she's not only kind, she's friendly. I'm not, I'm not particularly sociable. I don't need people if I never met another person for the rest of my life. Well, it's okay I'm not that. as friendly as I appear to be. Oh, uh, you, you put it out, yes. you, you manifest it, yeah. yeah. But, you, but you really do like people. No, I just want to live in a very quiet place somewhere, with my hands, yeah. where I can swim. I'm just about to leave this garden. It'll be my tenth garden. And that's a very sad thing to have to do. It's like leaving behind beloved children. I do make it a good rule. Whenever I leave a place, it's going into the hands of somebody who, who loves the garden. I just don't go off and leave my plants to perish from lack of care, lack of water. I'm leaving the island mainly because I can't tolerate the shooting of the wild birds. But when I leave here, I'm going to a really, really chosen final quiet place to make my 11th garden and to raise my Afghan homes in a natural environment. And I've chosen a place which will be very hard to pollute. There's no reason to do so. And the birds around me are singing away and saying, well done, <laughs> well done. Chirp, chirp, chirp. You shall die and I shall die. Take our places in the sky. You and she and she and I, when the time comes, all must die. That's a game we would play. Man and woman, girl and lad, in gypsy camps, far away. Laughing times, yet passing sad.
gone the gypsies, everyone, all who play the gypsy game, left the earth its mirth and spun, starry nights and house and flame, none can play that game alone, thus I want to hear the cry, come now, leave thy earthy home, join the gypsies in the sky. This is Dr. Karen Becker. Five years ago, I published a list of 13 types of pet foods ranked best to worst. That video remains one of the most popular here at Mercola Healthy Pets, as well as on YouTube. There have been a few updates I wanted to relate to you, so I thought it was time to release a sequel or a new revised list. First and foremost, when you're deciding what to feed your dog or cat, it's important to remember that your pet is a carnivore. His genetic makeup and internal workings remain essentially the same as his wild carnivorous ancestors. Your dog or cat can't move his jaws side to side. It's called lateral mandibular swing, and they can't do that. Dogs and cats' mouths only work up and down. Carnivores grab their prey, tear it into chunks with their sharp interlocking teeth, and gulp it down. They do not chew. Omnivorous mammals, like humans, have wide flat molars designed for chewing, and vegetarian animals have lots of wide flat molars designed for excessive mastication or a lot of chewing. In fact, some animals like ruminants or cows actually chew their food twice. All carnivores, including dogs and cats, also have very short digestive tracts compared to vegetarian animals. And this is because the wild carnivores uh, eat foods, of course, that are heavily contaminated with pathogens. They're not removing the colon or they're not removing uh, any parts of, of the, their prey's body that could have bacteria laden in their system. So their digestive tracts are designed to get foods in and out very quickly. They're not designed to ferment foods like vegetarians. The ancestral diet of a carnivore includes lots of variety and seasonal variability because certain prey was more available at certain times of year than the other. So there was actually a lot of variety in the diet. They thrive on consuming fresh, living, and whole foods, but not clean foods. But their diet was, in fact, moisture dense, which means a lot of water. The prey was primarily water, about 70%. It was high in protein and minerals and moderate in fat, in the wild, you won't see any obese bunnies out there. So when we think about feeding a dog or cat, it's usually moderate to, to low fat, but great quality fats and very low carbohydrate. The only carbohydrates wild cats consumed was what was naturally found in their prey's GI tracts and the occasional nibbling of grasses for added fiber and enzymes. Wild dogs and wolves, being scavenging carnivores, don't have nearly the perfectionistic food standards of cats. They do catch and kill and consume whole prey, but they also consume carrion, which are dead animals, and you'd never catch a cat going anywhere near anything dead. Dogs also will eat poo, grass, berries, other plant matter. In fact, research shows that up to 30% of the stomach contents of wolves contain plant matter. Commercial pet food is a relatively recent concept and has been around only about 100 years. And since then, major pet food companies have produced most of their products using a base of corn, wheat, or rice. 
recognizing feeding carnivores an abundance of grains fed cancer and created fat diabetic animals, the industry turned to grain-free dry foods, which absolutely reignited the kibble industry. Only this time with inappropriate levels of high glycemic starch like potatoes and pea flour. Now trendier sources of carbs are also being introduced to the pet food industry, such as lentils and garbanzo beans. In addition to increasing the carb content beyond which species appropriate, legumes contain lectins, which are molecules that can create GI inflammation and irritation. Fortunately for pet owners, dogs and cats are among the most resilient animals on the planet. They're able to eat foods that they were never designed to eat without dying. Degeneration does occur in these animals as a result of inappropriate nutrition, but sudden death doesn't happen. This is actually how we've been able to deceive ourselves into believing that convenient pet foods are good for dogs and cats because they don't immediately die of malnutrition. However, in my opinion, we've created dozens of generations of nutritionally weakened animals that suffer from degenerative diseases linked to nutritional deficiencies. The bottom line is that for 99.9% of the time, on Earth, dogs and cats have absolutely consumed their natural diet, which is an ancestral diet of fresh foods. For 0.1% of the time, animals have consumed highly processed foods. On top of being biologically inappropriate, we add a wad of synthetic vitamins and minerals to meet basic nutritional requirements and then heat the food to very high temperatures, which at best denatures proteins and decreases nutrient value, but at worst introduces carcinogens to your pet's body on a daily basis. Two potent cancer-causing substances are created when dry pet food is made by the extrusion process. When protein is extruded, carcinogenic heterocyclic amines are created. The byproduct of extruding starches are acrylamides, both which are known to cause cancer in dogs and cats. This is a little scary if you think about the fact that most pets on the planet are eating dry food for their entire lives and the fact that the cancer rate is skyrocketing in companion animals. Feeding dogs and cats inappropriate ingredients for several generations has created significant metabolic and physiologic stress, and convenient pet foods have really been the root of the problems of most of the inflammatory processes and degenerative diseases that plague today's dogs and cats. A biologically correct diet for a carnivore is a high-moisture, high-protein, moderate-fat, and low-carbohydrate. The vast majority of pet foods on the market today are the exact opposite. They're low-moisture, and low to moderate, poor quality protein and fat, and high in starch or carbs. All that to say, our goal is to mimic the ancestral diet of dogs and cats as closely as you can afford to do. And my list today is based off of these species-appropriate guidelines. As many of you know, I'm a huge advocate of feeding pets an unprocessed diet, as this is exactly what they were designed to eat in the wild. Now, I know some of you might be saying, I would also like to eat an all-organic, free-range, non-GMO fresh food diet. I just can't afford to. And of course, not only do I get this, my recommendation is that you feed yourselves and your pets as much unprocessed fresh food as you can afford to do. Some of my clients also um, can't afford to feed an all-fresh living raw food diet. So what they do is they offer snacks. They offer fresh food snacks for their companions. So their pets, let's say, eat an entirely processed diet for their meals, but they use what's number one on my list for their pets' snacks. And don't knock that. Actually, research does show that some healthy food is better than no healthy food at all. So if you're capable of just using fresh foods as snacks, you're still providing excellent options for your dog or cat. 
Out of 14 meals a week, some of my clients can afford to feed two or four of those meals in an unprocessed form, and that's a great suggestion. Some clients can actually afford to do 50-50, so they're feeding one meal of processed food a day and one fresh food meal a day. If that's what you're capable of doing, that's wonderful, but wherever you're at, don't panic. What I recommend is that you work towards providing the best food you can afford to feed. So starting at number one is no surprise, it's a nutritionally balanced raw homemade diet. This is the best food you could feed your dog or cat. It's very important not to wing it when preparing your pet's meals at home. I say this because when Steve Brown and I analyze many of the homemade and prey model diets out there, they fall frighteningly short on trace minerals, antioxidants, including um, really important nutrients like manganese, magnesium, vitamin E and D, copper, zinc, iron, choline, and essential fatty acids. Nutritional deficiencies over time will cause degenerative diseases in pets. Additionally, if the diet doesn't have proper fat or calcium to phosphorus balance, it can actually cause a myriad of health problems, especially in growing animals. So it's critically important that you know your diet is balanced. The great thing about homemade raw diets is that you get to hand pick the ingredients. So if your dog is allergic to chicken, you can pick a different protein source. You also get to know deep in your heart that you've washed the veggies, you know that there's no pesticides on them, you've seen the quality of the meats that you're going to be feeding, and this should provide an enormous peace of mind because it's becoming increasingly more difficult to find ethical pet food companies that use locally sourced or even U.S. grown ingredients. With homemade food, you're in complete control of every ingredient that enters your pet's body. And of course, raw food is just that. It's raw and it's unadulterated. So, you're, so it contains all of the enzymes and phytonutrients that are typically destroyed when processing occurs. Homemade food also gives you the flexibility to include a lot of nutritional variety in your pet's diet. So you can buy seasonal fruits and veggies uh, that are on sale. You can use produce that comes from your local supermarket, or you can certainly use produce from your garden or local, local farmer's market as well. Number two on my list is a nutritionally balanced cooked homemade diet. This option gives you all of the benefits I just discussed, minus the benefits of the free enzymes and phytonutrients found in living foods. Interestingly, there are a few nutrients that are actually more bioavailable when cooked, such as lycopene. Some animals prefer cooked food, some animals prefer warm food, and some clients prefer to cook the food. And there are also some medical conditions, such as recent GI surgery or pancreatitis, where cooked food is just a smart idea for your pet. Number three on my list is commercially available balanced raw food diets. Again, it's critically important that the diet be balanced and that you should be quite aware that there are a lot of foods on the market out there that are not nutritionally complete. These foods should say right on the label for supplemental or intermittent feeding. I don't recommend feeding unbalanced foods without adding in the missing nutrients or pets can have nutrition-related medical problems in the future. Commercially available balanced raw food diets are found in the freezer section of small or privately owned upscale pet boutiques. And actually now some big box stores are also starting to carry a larger selection of frozen raw diets. You can also find an excellent selection online. There are new raw foods entering the market every month with a variety of different attributes. Veggie, bone, and fat content vary widely between products. Commercial diets range from 0 to 40% roughage or veggies. And actually, that impacts the amount of synthetic vitamins and minerals that must be added to the diet to make it nutritionally complete. The veggie content will also impact digestive and stool health. So if you have a dog that suffers from chronic constipation, you would want to choose a food with a higher veggie content. Commercially available raw food diets range from low-fat to high-fat, 
If you have an obese cat, you would obviously pick a low-fat food for your cat. But if you have a German short hair pointer that runs lean and loses weight quickly, you choose a higher fat food for that dog. Ground bone, bone meal, or a bone meal equivalent mix will be added to raw diets for mineral balance. Some raw foods contain bone pieces that are actually pretty big, in fact, too big to be safely cooked. So if you choose to buy a commercially available raw food and you want to cook it, you need to make sure it's safe to do so. Some raw food companies pride themselves on only using happy, healthy, grass-fed animals and organic veggies, while other companies use animal meats and produce imported from China and other countries, as well as factory-farmed, GMO-fed animals raised in feedlots here in the U.S., some companies use whole foods to meet the majority of their diet's trace mineral requirements, while some other companies use very few ingredients and actually rely on AFCO vitamin and mineral premixes to meet their nutritional requirements. Another factor to consider is how the raw food is formulated. Meat-based foods, like raw diets, are almost always calorically dense and should be formulated on a caloric basis, not a dry matter basis. This is a more demanding method of formulating, and comparing the formulation on a dry matter basis compared to caloric basis shows that raw foods formulated on a dry matter basis actually fall significantly short of nutrients. It's easy to tell if your raw food is formulated on a caloric basis because if you flip it over, the nutrients are listed as a gram or milligram of nutrient per 1,000 kilocalories. Those foods formulated on a dry matter basis will have nutrients listed as a percentage of dry matter basis. I only recommend choosing raw foods that are formulated on a caloric basis. How companies manage potentially pathogenic bacteria is another consideration, which ranges from doing nothing to batch testing, UV treatments, ozone, and fermentation treatments to HPP, or high-pressure pasteurization. The great thing about this sector of the pet food industry being the fastest growing category is that you will be able to find a food that fits your ethical and financial parameters with the convenience of not, of not having to make the food yourself. The downfall is, of course, you're obviously paying for the luxury of having someone else do the hard work for you. And like all pet food companies, you'll need to investigate the company you're buying from to make sure you're feeding the correct product for your pet's specific nutrition and medical goals. Number four on the list is dehydrated or freeze-dried raw diets. If you can't or won't feed fresh raw food, a good alternative is the dehydrated freeze-dried category that's been reconstituted with water. These diets are shelf-stable, so they're super convenient, and to make them biologically correct, all you have to do is just add water. Dehydrated or freeze-dried raw diets haven't been processed at high temperatures, and in many cases, the nutrient value has been retained minus a balanced fatty acid profile. Remember, the definition of raw food means it will spoil if it's left at room temperature. So these foods, by definition, are not the same as raw food diets, but they can be a great choice for people on the move, people that are camping with their dogs or cats, or pets that go to daycare or need to be boarded. It's really the next best thing to a truly raw, fresh food diet. Make sure the brand that you select is nutritionally balanced for all life stages. Number five is a commercially available cooked or refrigerated food. This is a new category of pet food that is exploding in the marketplace. Obviously, the food has been gently heat processed, so the proteins have been slightly denatured, but the moisture content is excellent, and the food is fresher, so the nutrient content is better than the other choices that will be lower on this list. You'll find these foods in the refrigeration section of pet stores, and now actually many human grocery stores as well. The quality of the raw materials going into the cooked refrigerated pet food ranges from absolutely terrible to excellent, so you do need to do your research when you're choosing brands. Number six on the list is human-grade canned food. If the website doesn't say the ingredients are human-grade, then they're not. 
Pet food made with human grade ingredients is a great deal more expensive than feeding feed grade or animal grade canned food. These foods will typically be found in boutiques and usually small independent retailers that really focus on great quality foods. Number seven, super premium canned food. These products are typically found at big box stores like Petco and PetSmart or in your traditional veterinarian's office. These foods contain feed grade ingredients, which in parenthesis means foods not approved for human consumption, but the moisture content is much more biologically correct than dry food, and many have excellent protein, fat, fiber, carb ratios. So I placed this above the next category on the list, which is number eight, human grade dry food. Dry food is not biologically correct in terms of moisture content compared to the ancestral diet. Additionally, even grain-free dry foods contain unnecessary starch that can cause inflammation issues in your pet. Human grade is very important because the ingredients have passed quality inspection, which means it doesn't contain poor quality or rendered unidentified or mystery proteins. But as I mentioned, unlike dry food that has been baked, which it will clearly say on the label baked, you should assume, if it doesn't say that, that it's been extruded, which means you're probably feeding a small amount of carcinogens on a daily basis. Yuck. Number nine is super premium dry food found at big box stores and your local conventional veterinary clinic. These extruded dry foods are made with feed grade ingredients not approved for human consumption, but are still usually naturally preserved. Most of these foods contain added grains or starches, which are not species appropriate and may harbor the risk of mycotoxins. Number 10 on the list is grocery store brand canned food. This food choice is ranked below super premium dry foods because even though the moisture content is more biologically appropriate, these foods usually contain high levels of unnecessary grains and synthetic toxic preservatives such as BHA, BHT, and ethoxyquin. Number 11 on the list is grocery store brand dry foods, which has all of the same issues as grocery store brand canned foods minus the moisture. Number 12 on the list is semi-moist pouch food, which is really bad. The reason this type of food is so far down the list is because in order to make the food semi-moist, we have to add an ingredient called propylene glycol. And this is an undesirable preservative that actually is the second cousin to ethylene glycol, which is antifreeze. And while propylene glycol is approved for use in pet foods, it's unhealthy for dogs and cats to consume. And number 13 Last on the list is an unbalanced homemade diet, raw or cooked. Dead last on the list for good reason is the idea that some pet owners believe that they can offer their dog or cat, let's say a chicken breast and some veggies and call it a day. A lot of people I know are caring, but quite uneducated, and they're feeding things like chicken wings and backs and necks with some cheap ground beef to a growing puppy. Yes, the food is homemade, and yes, it's fresh, which is great. However, the food is nutritionally unbalanced, which can cause significant, irreversible, and potentially fatal health problems, including endocrine abnormalities, skeletal issues, and organ degeneration as a result of deficiencies in calcium, trace minerals, and omega fatty acids. These diets are the reason all homemade and most raw diets are feared and loathed by conventional veterinarians. We see animals that have been harmed by people feeding unbalanced diets, and it's heartbreaking. Most importantly, it's entirely preventable. So homemade diets must be done right or not done at all. If the diet you're feeding your dog or cat falls into one of the lower quality categories, don't despair. Most people are feeding their pets lesser quality foods because they either can't afford to feed a better food or they simply don't know what constitutes good nutrition for their pet. 
If you discover that your pet is eating from the lower half of the list, set a goal to feed better quality foods now that you know can make a difference or when you can afford to feed a more nutritious diet. Everyone's pet food can be found in one of these categories. I encourage you to figure out where the diet you're serving right now falls in the list and then strive for improvement by feeding more nourishing species appropriate foods. Thousands of veterinarians are stuck using protocols that they don't personally believe in, but they are dictated. I mean, I was taught coming out of vet school that you know, vaccines were good. I mean, you just vaccinated and prevented disease, and that sounded great to me. But unfortunately, uh, I started to see um, side effects. So I had a problem now. I'm a veterinarian, and I'm hurting my patients with these vaccines. So I decided to change things, and I started lengthening the time between vaccines, I started lowering my volume because it was very clear to me that the small pets could not handle the same volume as the big pet, but they played hardball. If you don't do what we say, we'll go after your license. And that's what they did to me, Karen. I am Dr. Karen Becker, and today I have a very special guest joining me. I have Dr. John Robb, who is a veterinarian of, how many years, Dr. Robb, have you been a veterinarian? 32 years. Dr. 32 Becker. years. Uh, Dr. Rob, many of you know who he is. He is world famous as of this year. We'll explain why in just a minute. Before we talk about the trials and tribulations of what you've been through recently, John, let's back up and talk about um, life before controversy. And let's talk about uh, your background in terms of where you went to vet school and then the practices that you were involved with. Thanks, Karen. I'd be glad to. Um, I began, I went to vet school at UC Davis uh, from 1981 to 1985. Uh, excellent school, uh, gave me a good education, at least I felt at the time. And um, then I did a one-year internship, private practice internship in New Haven, Connecticut at New Haven Central Veterinary Hospital. Um, yeah, it's true, I've come in the public eye uh, more recently, but honestly, Karen, I've been um, fighting to be a veterinarian my whole career. Uh, you know, the drive for profits in veterinary medicine has really become a problem, especially with the advent of uh, companies like VCA and, and the Mars Company coming in and owning veterinary hospitals. So these are businessmen, businesswomen. These are people that want to make profits but don't necessarily have the best interests of the pets involved. And unfortunately, the veterinary establishment uh, the AVMA, AHA, uh, other organizations seem to be joining forces instead of putting their hands up and saying we have a problem here. So, um, you know, ever since New Haven Central, my first experience was uh, my first night on uh, overnight where a dog was hit on the side of the road. It was uh, brought in by the technician who left. It was in pretty bad shape. Uh, I was supposed to put it to sleep. That's what I was told if it's injured. But then it opened his eyes. It looked at me. I looked at him. And then I worked all night to save the dog's life, and then I was in big trouble in the morning because I had spent a lot of money and there was no owner. So I kind of knew at that point that it wasn't really about the pet. And uh, fortunately in that case, um, with a newspaper article, we found the owner. He reunited and sung the praises of New Haven Central. <laughs> so I was off the hot seat. And, uh, but I learned that you know there's a big thing about money here that supersedes our caring for the pets. Um, and from there, you know, it's been it's been a problem all the way through, particularly the vaccine issue. Uh, many have come before me and understand uh, that we're over vaccinating pets and overdosing them. Um, but for whatever reason, now it's come to the limelight. Now, in terms of my the reason I came to the limelight, Karen, it's because of the Mars Candy Bar Company. 
Um, I've owned and operated three veterinary facilities. The first was a standalone practice, which I sold to VCA. The second was a 24-hour uh, emergency care facility. And the third was a Banfield, a franchise. Um, Marza Camdy Bar Company came in and bought Banfield. They're a very controlling company. They didn't want doctors making decisions. They wanted to tell doctors what to do. So they defranchised, and they got rid of all 250 hospitals. But they played hardball. If you don't do what we say, we'll go after your license. And that's what they did to me, Karen. So back up, John, and talk about how did that process unfold? So first of all, you touched on so many issues. Part of the reason I, I knew I would be an integrated veterinarian, so I came out. I was the holistic doctor in a very conventional practice for a couple of years. Couldn't deal with that because on my day right. off, Wednesdays, I would be treating my cancer patients integratively, and they would come in, let's say, for a little bit of nausea on my day off, and they'd be vaccinated. So right. I, I, I left that practice Terrible. because they were vaccinating Terrible. my cancer patients, and I set up my right. own hospital, of course. But for those of us as veterinarians that don't have the ability to just up, get angry, and set up their own practice, like I did, you many thousands of veterinarians are stuck using protocols that they don't personally believe in, but they are dictated. So how did this go down, John? How did how did this confrontation with right. with uh, over vaccines happen? Well, like you said, you know, I mean, I was taught coming out of vet school that you know. Vaccines were good. I mean, you just vaccinated and presented, prevented disease, and that sounded great to me. But unfortunately, uh, I started to see um, side effects. I started to see anaphylaxis, and then I started to see more, more long-term sequelae. And I began to leave the veterinary uh, literature, like the JAMA, Journal of American Baby AMA, and I started to research on my own, and I came across, uh, you know, veterinarians who had been showing that vaccines caused a lot of serious side effects, including hemolytic anemia and cancer at the injection sites, et cetera, et cetera. So I had a problem now. I'm a veterinarian and I'm hurting my patients with these vaccines. So I decided to change things and I started lengthening the time between vaccines. And I started lowering my volume because it was very clear to me that the small pets could not handle the same volume as the big pets. So when I got to Banfield, um, and, and, you know, they, they're so into over-vaccination, I put protocols in place to stop that. And that protocol was, you know, smaller dogs received a lower volume. And also, um, we only gave one vaccine per visit. And also, I didn't give them all the vaccines they specified. So, so Mars then bought Banfield, and they basically came in and they said, look, you know, we want your franchise back. In fact, we're buying all the franchises back because we control the doctors. So we're going to give you about a third of what it's worth, and you're going to leave, and maybe you can go open up another hospital. I said, I'm not going anywhere. I have 15 years left on my contract, and you can't tell me how to practice veterinary medicine. That's my job, so get out. Well, they went ahead and, and took my franchise. They had me arrested, um, and they did what they said they would do. They said if I didn't go easy, they would report me to the state board because I was lowering my volume, and they said it was against the law, and so they did. They reported me to the state board of Connecticut, and that was a whole other thing. They came with 10, I mean, between going back to, uh, first I had to go back and warn my clients because they sent a letter out to all 5,000 of my clients saying none of their pets were uh, protected. Yeah. Protected. Yeah. And so they all had, and I knew all they needed to do was do a tighter test and they would show protection. So I went back to warn my clients because they're still my clients of and those course. are still my patients. And so they put armed guards, armed guards in Gosh. front of the 
of all the PetSmarts in Connecticut, two sets, one PetSmart paid for, one Mars, and they made a big scene. They brought in doctors from other places, employees from other places, and they started to say, I was making the scene. When they created a big tumultuous situation to say to the police officers, this guy's nuts. So the first time they handcuffed me to a stretcher and took me to the psych ward. The oh. second time I went back, they, they arrested me. And, um, you know, and I'm just trying to hand out literature to do a titer and not revaccinate the dog without doing that because I knew my pets were protected. I had done titers and I knew it. So, you know, it ended up in, uh, in court, in federal court, and they lied to the judge, said, oh, we were offering titers. They did everything they could not to do a titer. They injured so many pets. Some died because they revaccinated all of them. That's how they wanted to cover up the crime. In other words, I was vaccinated correctly, and they didn't want anybody to see that their pets had immunity. So this fight with Mars and then in front of the state board, and this was the craziest thing. I brought in all the scientific articles to my state board in Connecticut, and they told me that they didn't care about science. This is, these are veterinarians. They don't care about science. I broke the law, and so even if I have to kill my patient, I have to obey the law. I said, you guys are crazy. I mean, you're crazy. What are you saying? But this is the state of where veterinary medicine has gotten to, where we have a mandated rabies law where we could take a simple blood test and find out that they don't need the shot. And we veterinarians are in bondage now, yep. forced to injure our patients. And then you got Mars coming in that, trying to control veterinarians as their resource. I mean, Karen, I thank God that you're standing up. I thank God other veterinarians are standing up because most veterinarians want to do the right thing, but they're scared to death yeah. about their license and yeah. repercussions. Oh, and rightfully know? so, John, they have made a glaring, they promised they would make an example of you and they did. But John, right. the, the silver lining in the horrific circumstances that you've been through is that as integrative practitioners, we've been screaming for 20 right. years, we're overdoing right. it. No one's listening. In fact, they think we're, you know, they think all of us are crazy, crazy nut jobs because we're right. preaching titers. And the most right. interesting thing about titers is that you remember going to vet school. I was vaccinated uh, at 13 years of age for rabies because I was a wildlife rehabilitator. When I went to vet school, they titered me. They said, no, 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 you've already been vaccinated. You have to be titered. <laughs> I said, okay, so you'll titer me, but we won't extend the same courtesy to dogs and right. cats. That's right, because they're different, right? Dogs and cats are different than people. So it, goes, it comes back to the almighty dollar. But honestly, the silver lining is you have affected change, Dr. Rob. You, your case, as painful as this entire thing has been, you are affecting change. And for that, I am forever grateful. Talk to me about some of the amazing things that have happened out of this really public case of you standing up and saying, I am not going to, I am not going to harm animals. I took an oath not to, and I will not. What has happened out of your out of your difficult circumstances? What are some of the benefits that you are now seeing coming into place? Thanks, thanks, Karen. Yes, well, you know, my wife and I um, actually started the Protect the Pets movement in 2006. We took all our retirement money and we put it into the movement. It was never to make money, but it was to bring morality back into veterinary medicine. So that was good because I had a track record going into this of already trying to stand up for the rights of the pets and the people who own them and the veterinarians, okay? Yeah. Uh, and so basically what's come out of it is um, I've gotten onto a worldwide uh, screen, meaning because I won't, you know, because I was willing to put my license on the line mm -hmm. and my and my and all my resources to do what I love best, which is being a veterinarian and protecting my patients. 
Uh, this has become a movement of the heart. And what's happened is people are joining me. And I don't look at it as me at all. I look at it as you, Karen, and all the people who have been fighting these issues for years, finally getting to a tipping point that we're working together. But what's happening is, you see, the people were isolated. The people whose pets were being injured and dying were isolated and they had no voice. And they'd been told that it wasn't the shot, even though four hours after the shot, my pet is blind and seizuring and he was fine going in. It wasn't the shot. It just was epilepsy coming on. Or when they started bleeding internally and then it was hemolytic anemia, it wasn't the shot. Or when there were tumors right on the right hip where they got that injection, it wasn't the shot, you know. But now they had somebody who was visible in the public saying, it was the shot. And so they've come on board to tell their story because as you know, Karen, it's not legally required for veterinarians to report adverse events and therefore there's no real log of it. So those in the veterinary establishment, the AVMA, AHA, and those associated with it just want to say, I mean, there was a veterinarian testifying in the legislature when we're proposing this bill in Connecticut who said, I never heard of a vaccine reaction. I know. I mean, this is a veterinarian. I know. So, you know what I'm saying? And I was like, you know what I wanted to do, which I didn't do. But the point is, now the people are coming forward, and now we can see the evidence. Mm -hmm. You, the people, are the ones that are driving this change because you have had enough. And we veterinarians like Karen and myself and others are going to work with you to amend the rabies law and bring morality back into a profession go wrong. And people like Mars, a candy bar company, who think they could come in and victimize your pet for profits are going to be rudely awakened because we, the people, control them yeah. because we spend the money exactly. and we decide where we're going to spend it. That's right. You see? So, so we have the power here. We just have to unite. Right. That's the bottom line here. And we are uniting now. And you have seen some, you have seen, you're, you have seen ripples, drops turn into little ripples, which are turning into really big waves of, of people listening, paying attention. You are bringing, you're doing a great job of bringing to light uh, the elephant in our, the elephant in the room in our profession. Right. Uh, and people are finally paying attention. Now, of course, this is vac the vaccine issue is one of the most hotly debated topics in veterinary medicine. Right. But you right. hit the nail on the head. It's the people spending the money. Uh, right. People have a choice over where they spend their dollars when it comes there to veterinary go. medicine and how they spend, how they choose to spend their money, whether they do a titer, whether they go to a different veterinarian, whether they choose to associate, let's say, with a corporately run veterinary practice that has protocols that they will not budge on. So right. pet parents are in complete control of how they're going to participate even passively by how you're spending your money. So Dr. Rob, give us some suggestions. If people, if people have been through the pain of a vaccine reaction and keep in mind, Dr. Rob hit the nail on the head. This could be, this is everything from acute anaphylaxis, which means I have had, uh, I have had pa patients, clients that have brought home a puppy. There was a free vet visit included with the purchase of their puppy. And those puppies have anaphylaxed and died on the table. And veterinarians say it has nothing to do with the vaccine. It just, I mean, it's, it's asinine. It's asinine. Well, Karen, let me just say one thing about anaphylaxis. You know, just to show you how much this is being covered up. The 2005 study, which I know you're aware of, back adverse events within the first 72 hours of vaccines with dogs, okay? Um, you know, one of the chief investigators in that was uh, Karen Font, who's also one of the medical directors at Banfield, okay? Now, 
they, they showed that reactions were higher for smaller pets and multiple vaccines caused more reactions. But in the end, they concluded that vaccines were safe. What they didn't include in the study, which because I had her under deposition in the court of law, I said to her, why didn't you include in your study the dogs that died of anaphylaxis? Certainly that was within the first 72 hours. And I'm telling you, her jaw dropped because it turns out that there were six animals that mm -hmm. died of anaphylaxis mm -hmm. and they didn't put them in the study yeah. and they concluded they were safe. I mean, this is, this is just, this is just, um, I, I mean, it's beyond me it is. That, that, that they could do that and conclude they're yep. safe when animals died, you know? So, so we, we're, we're on a mission here. It is we, the people, we do choose where we stand and people have to stand up for too long. People felt they had no power. Yes. And I understand it when they were just one, but we're not just one anymore. We are a worldwide movement. We've had veterinarians join the movement, um, certainly pet owners joining the movement, and just humanitarian people joining the movement. So we're not stopping. Mm -hmm. This, I mean, every even while we're doing this conversation, you and I both know there's pets out there that are being injured or dying and giving injections they don't need. Right this minute, mm -hmm. there is no time to waste, folks. Lives depend on education, encouraging each other, and taking action steps, action mm -hmm. steps. Mm -hmm contacting your legislator. Uh, you know, if you look me up on Facebook, John Robb, uh, I'm trying to keep it centralized, but we have people, we have now 20 states, Protect the Pets, New York, Protect nice. the Pets, Iowa. Nice. And people are, right, we're, we've got organization. We're putting together the science so we can quickly go off to a legislator. We're, we're, we're not just sitting here speaking, but we're taking action steps towards changing the amended rabies law. So first we have to educate, educate legislators, educate pet owners, mm -hmm. unsuspecting pet owners that are heading in for a shot that can kill their pet. Mm -hmm. Somebody's got to hand them a pamphlet and say, listen, we've got a problem here. Yeah. You got, we got to reach those people. And then they have to become part of this movement. And I so appreciate, Karen, you recognizing, I mean, that where my heart is and allowing us to work together on your program and people like Rodney, the wonderful man from Canada, who developed that video that went to almost 20 million people. Yeah. You know, we we have the power, but we have to stay united. It's not about political parties, race. It's about the pets. Right. Everybody owns them, and right. everybody needs to put all their differences aside and keep on target here to amend the rabies law. That's the deal. So, Dr. Rob, is the best place for people to go to get more information? Is it your website, Facebook page? Where's the, how can people learn Listen, more? I, I, first of all, I put out my phone number, 203-731-4251. You can call me. You can go to my email, which is on my website. I have a website called protectthepets.com. You can contact me my email. You can go to Facebook, and you can just get involved with a thread say, Dr. Rob, call me. I mean, people think that I'm so popular that I can't talk to people. Baloney, this movement is about you, and I want to talk to you, and I want to know what your situation is, because you're no bigger than me, I'm no bigger than you, we work together, and I need to hear people's voices, to see their situations, to see what their talents are, yeah. and see where they want to be part of the movement. So contact me any way you can. There are other people involved, like yourself, Karen, who you know, we'll take part of the load in terms of taking that information and, and putting into a precise, powerful uh, force to amend the rabies law. That's what we're going after first, because yeah. once we make that crack, once we crack into that veterinary establishment and we show that we, the people, uh, control veterinary medicine.
there's 200 million of us. Right. There's 40,000 of right. them. Right. We, we control it. And we, we are capable, and we are capable of pet parents of making wise decisions yes. for the animals we're caring for. We are in, we are the decision makers for the animals in our homes. It's not your veterinarian's choice. It's your choice. You, you, you you're the parent. So, and the other big point I think that we need to make here is, guys, a lot of people say, oh my gosh, you're anti-vaccine. Guys, there's a huge difference between over-vaccination and protective vaccines. So we are not talking about never vaccinating your pet for anything ever. We're talking about wisely protecting with minimal, a, a well-made choice for protection for puppies and kittens, and then tightering for a lifetime after that. Perfect. Uh, and I think it's really very important to make that distinction because people say, oh my gosh, you know, you're, you're saying never vaccinate your dog and cat for anything. All these diseases will come back. Guys, there's a big difference between protective immunity and toxicosis. And what Dr. Rob is talking about is that you don't have to bring your dog or cat in every year for nine vaccines. They don't magically wear off at midnight on December 31st. And some of right. these vaccines are substantially more toxic than others. And so it yeah. is your job to know enough about what we're discussing to be able to make the best decisions for the animals you're caring for. But if your veterinarian refuses to respect your opinion and your vantage point, find a new vet, right, Dr. Rob? Karen, you're, you're right on, and I'm glad you brought in that point about um, we're not anti-vax. We're not. The job of the veterinarian is to vaccinate to produce immunity mm -hmm. with the smallest volume and the smallest number of vaccines to produce that immunity. Yep. Once the dog is immune, we're done. We're done. So that's all we're saying is once yep. they've developed immunity, easily measured by a titer. I'm sticking with rabies, parvo, and parvo distemper. Yep, that's what I'm bet. sticking with, those three. Yep. Uh, once we have the titer... They're immune. And, and I was speaking, as you know, I know you've had Dr. Schultz and you've done a wonderful job of bringing key people together. But I spoke, was speaking with Dr. Schultz yesterday and uh, he's helping us. He's in favor of the titers, as you know, and uh, he's been trying to get this forward for, for a long time. And he pointed out to me that rabies is the worst of all the vaccines in terms of toxic reactions. Mm -hmm. Okay, so even more important to, to pinpoint the rabies, you know, Many veterinarians are now doing distemper parvo titers and then not vaccinating. It's about 20% or 25%, but it's a substantial number. But many owners, like you said, they go into the vet right now and they ask for a titer and the vet says, it's illegal for me to draw a rabies titer. I That's know. what they tell them. I know. Or, or, or it's 500 bucks, right? They make it so economically well, painful. That's it. And you go and you, you know, I'm trying to, right now I have a special called a special, but basically, um, I'm charging $32 for a rabies yeah. titer and the, and the 454 for all four. Anybody who can get the, now some people have gone to their vet and they'll draw the blood for $6.50 and other people it's $65. I... So find a vet that's going to be reasonable yes. and I'll help you in that area. But the, 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 the price will come down yes. as it becomes a standard. We yep. know that. Yep. Supply and demand. And that's know, an so. awesome. So I just want to I just want to highlight again. So what Dr. Rob is saying is that you can do a parvo, dis, a parvo distemper and rabies titer together for what's the cost, Dr. Rob? $54. That's $54. amazing. That's amazing. So at this point, that's awesome that you have worked together to get the price down to that point. At this point, guys, it's so well worth spending your latte fund on your tighter fund right now um, because $54 is a very small price to pay to ensure that your, protect, that your pets are protected without offering any additional toxicosis. So that's brilliant, and that's wonderful um, because all the veterinarians say, well, it's $500, not through you, Dr. Rob. So uh, for anyone that's looking to complete this blood test that measures previous immunity, um, check out Dr. Rob's Facebook page, website, 
um, uh, as well as I think that you, you actually ha are doing a lot of other interviews with a lot of other platforms, which is wonderful. You're doing everything you can to get the word out. Well, that, you know, that's the key is to reach people and educate. And uh, this, this is over when we reach that key number of people, yep. Karen. Yep. And uh, your program is going to add a big segment to that population because of your popularity um, in terms of people trusting you. And, and that's why I thank you for having me on the show because that trust that they have for you hopefully will extend to me and we can continue together to educate, encourage, and take action yeah. so that we pass this law. And yes, veterinarians, you know, they, unfortunately, some are, you know, let's face it, each person needs to be judged based on themselves. Mm -hmm. So I don't classify veterinarians. We know there's some vets who own hospitals who don't know how they're going to survive if the rabies isn't mandated. Yep. We know there's the corporate ones who don't care mm -hmm. and just want to drive people in the door. But we have mostly associate veterinarians who are in bondage to the system. Yep. That's really the problem. You're right. And we want to free them to practice veterinarian from a heart perspective. That's what this movement is about. Lots of layers, Karen. I mean, look at the suicide rate, Karen, exactly. in veterinary medicine. Yep. It's crazy. It Four is. times. I mean, it is. Because because they have to go against their heart and yep. injure animals. I mean, this is this is inhumane. This yeah. is. I just can't. I mean, it blows my mind when I really think that you have these innocent creatures. And somebody knows what they're doing and allows us to continue. But we, the people, are going to stop it. And it stops now. I appreciate your passion, Dr. Rob. I appreciate, I am heartbroken over your previous circumstances. But the, but the beautiful universal gift is out of these, out of this difficulty professionally, you have opened this topic wide open, to which I am forever thankful because it's something that I'm not sure would have happened without this cataclysmic event of you going nose to nose and toe to toe with your state boards and then going nationwide and wide and now worldwide in bringing attention to this critically important topic. So I appreciate everything you're doing. Yeah. Well, I want to say one last thing about the worldwide. You know, it is worldwide, Karen, because we, we may set the standards in this country and then other countries adopt them. And there's pets in Belgium, in the Netherlands, and, and Japan, and all these places where we want to reach all of them too. So I just want the viewers to know, I don't care what country, I mean, we'll start Protect the Pets, you know, England, Protect the Pets, France. We are going to go wherever pets are being victimized, and the pet parents, and we are going to set them free. That's what this is all about.